Hey, thanks for being here this morning. Um, if you're a guest this morning, and I know we've got many guests, um, we have been going through the Gospel of John. We started back in January um, looking at John 1.1, and we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as Jeff said at the beginning, uh, we are, um, we're almost finished, frankly, with the Gospel of John. And those of you who have been going and reading through this, um, it's, it's been just a great journey, and, and gosh, we're almost finished. And last week, if you were here, uh, we read um, those words from Jesus on the cross, it is finished, to tell us die, that God has taken all of our sins for us to the cross so that we can have abundant and eternal life with Him. So the work of the cross has been completed, and that is where we are at in John 19 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to John 19. And so this morning, as we look at this great passage of Scripture, I want to just kind of set it up for you. It's still Good Friday. Jesus is still hanging on the cross. We're going to look and see what happens next. Because in just a moment, five different people are going to respond to Jesus we look at John 19 and 20. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on the cross, you took our sins and you declared it is finished. Not in a way of defeat that you had given up, but that you willingly laid down your life for your friends, for your disciples, for us. And so, God, as we reflect on how these five people respond this morning to your teaching, we pray, God, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there were three pastors having lunch one day. And as they were having lunch, they discovered that all of them had the same problem, that there were bats in the bell tower, a bat infestation, if you will. And the first pastor says, yeah, I, got, I think I got rid of about half of the bats. I hired a really good exterminator, and I think about 50% of the bats are gone. The second pastor said, well, what I did is I put a speaker facing up toward the bell tower and then every now and then, I just play some really loud music. And I think I got taken care of about 75% of the bats. And the third pastor said, well, actually, I got rid of all the bats. And the other two pastors said, how in the world did you do that? He said, well, it actually wasn't that difficult. I just went out uh, to the bell tower. I confirmed all those bats, and they disappeared. They scattered I hate that joke because it's true. Oftentimes on the day of confirmation, people get together, great celebration. We pray over our kids, and then many of them, frankly, we never see again step into the church. Now, I'm glad to say that that is not the case here at Faith Lutheran. Tim Moore and many of you who have been pouring into our young people continue to walk alongside our young people. But for many people, they, they, that's it. Maybe they'll show back up at Christmas or Easter, 
But so many young people today, on the day of their confirmation, on the day of their affirmation of baptism, they scatter. They're gone. You know, in some ways, I don't think we should entirely be surprised about young people, about all people scattering when things get strange, when things get unusual. Because on the cross, on that day, everybody scattered. People were afraid. The Jesus movement that had been going for three years had been growing and growing and growing. The teachings, the miracles, the healings. People were so excited. But then the disciples and so many people witnessed the day, the evening, which Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And throughout the night, there were several trials. And there was a guilty verdict in beatings, in torture. And then Jesus was hung on a cross to die. Everyone scattered, but a handful of people. And we're going to look at those people who stuck around a little bit. And I want to invite you to think about who you are in the story or who you might be in the story of what transpired next. Jesus was hung on the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning. And at about 3 in the afternoon, many scholars believe, is the moment he died. Scripture says he gave his last breath and let go, willingly allowed himself to go to the Father. It was Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, and they had to do something quickly because Jesus was Jewish. And soon, in just a few hours, it was going to be the Sabbath day, which, of course, is a holy day. It's a day where they rest. It's a day where they don't do any work. And there you've got Jesus hanging on the cross, and his friends and the Jewish people knew that he couldn't just stay on the cross. They needed to do something, and they needed to do it quickly because it was this holy day. Otherwise, Jesus would not be able to have his body would not be taken care of for a couple days. And they wanted to do something reverently because they cared about him. And that's where we're going to pick up in the story this morning, John 19, beginning with verse 38. Later, we don't know how much later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, Pontius Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he was feared, uh, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. So the first person we see responding to Jesus hanging on the cross is Joseph of Arimathea. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? Well, there's a couple things uh, we know about him from Scripture. Number one, he's from Arimathea, which is just a, a, a village nearby Jerusalem. It's not far. And he's from this town. And aren't you glad that uh, sometimes the Bible gives us a little bit of a na- um, uh, an identifier, an adjective of who that person is. There were a lot of Josephs in the Bible, right? When you think about all the Josephs, and what, what John is telling us is it was this particular Joseph. I wish sometimes John and the other writers would have been a little bit more specific about all the Marys, right? Lots of Marys in the Bible, So he's from Arimathea. The second thing we know about uh, Joseph is that he was wealthy and powerful. He was part of the Sanhedrin, 
And he was a good and upright person. And you might be asking, well, how do we know that? Luke, another gospel writer, tells us a little bit more context who Joseph was. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, meaning the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, a good and upright man who had not consented in their decision and action to hang Jesus on a cross. He came from the Judean town, Judean meaning that region, that area around Jerusalem, of Arimathea. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So this is who Joseph of Arimathea was. And I have to tell you, in John 30, uh, 1938, it says he was a secret disciple of Jesus. I don't get that. When I think about a disciple of Jesus, I think of someone who believes someone who's courageous, someone who's willing to boldly say, I believe and I follow this guy, Jesus. But it, he was a secret disciple. To me, that's an oxymoron. That there, there's, there's just no congruence. How in the world could a person be a secret disciple? But that's what John writes. I don't get it. So he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Um, and it says he was waiting waiting for the kingdom of God. And so I would describe Joseph of Arimathea, this is my description, as a guy who's on a spiritual journey. He's just kind of walking along. He's open to spiritual things. He's open to God. And he's waiting and seeing, God, where, where is this going to land? What's going on here? I'm open. And I wonder if that's some of you here this morning. You're on a spiritual journey, just kind of waiting and seeing what happens. Seeing if the Holy Spirit shows up in your life. Seeing how God might speak to you, meet you in your life. So that's the first person. This is Joseph who is on a spiritual journey. And I'm just going to call him um, Wait and See. Verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearly by, was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, many of you have been going through uh, the Gospel of John. You remember back in John 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Hey, who in the world are you? Who are you? He was a very wealthy and powerful man. He was also part of the Sanhedrin. And so in John 3, um, Nicodemus uh, and Jesus have this conversation that goes back and forth. And Nicodemus has got all these questions. And Jesus is explaining to him who he is. And, and, John, and, and then Nicodemus says, well, what do I need to do to be made right with God? And then Jesus says, you need to be born again. And, and, and Nicodemus was like, what? How, do, how, how does that happen? I, I need to go back into my mother's womb and, and all that. And Jesus is like, no, that's gross. That's weird. That's not how it works. You need to be reborn of the Spirit and then Jesus declares that statement that we are so familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what it means to be reborn. 
And by the way, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but so that you might have life, that you might have abundance, that you might have joy, that you might have freedom. I have come, and this is good news. So there's Nicodemus. Sometime later, helping Joseph of Arimathea with Jesus' body. When we think about Nicodemus, we can't help but think and wonder about all the questions that Nicodemus had. And if you're here this morning and you've got some questions, you might just be Nicodemus or like Nicodemus. Lots and lots of questions about Jesus, but still engaged, still intrigued. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now, this is a couple days later. This is uh, first day of the week tells us it's Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one uh, Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Mary Magdalene is the first one at the tomb on that first Easter morning. And some of the other gospel writers write about Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Mary, and Mary. There's a whole bunch of ladies that show up on that first resurrection morning, or on that resurrection morning. John only records Mary Magdalene. We don't know why. I I just wonder if it's because she was the first one there on that morning. Why was Mary Magdalene there so early on that morning, even before the sun came up? Now, we don't know exactly, but I would imagine, I'm guessing... It was Friday when they they, they took Jesus' body off the cross. She had to wait all day Saturday, and I can just about imagine all night, Saturday night, she's tossing and turning, and she's sad, and she's grieving, and she wants to make sure the guys did it right. She wants to make sure the guys properly prepared Jesus' body. But I don't think she was really thinking clearly, because they got this several-ton stone in front of the tomb. I mean, what what does she think she's going to find? What does she think she's going to do? Because when she gets down there, there's going to be this big rock, this boulder that's that's put in its place. There's going to be armed guards that the other gospels tell us. She can't do anything. What does she think she can do? But if you've ever been like Mary Magdalene and you've loved someone so much, you don't think clearly. And I think that's Mary Magdalene, is someone who just loved Jesus so much that she just wanted to show up. And maybe you found yourself at a moment in time where you just wanted to be near that person who had died. Maybe a loved one. You've gone to a columbarium or a cemetery or some place that reminds you of that person. That's what love does, right? It just draws us to a place because we just want to be near them. We're not thinking really clearly. You know, as we think about uh, who Mary Magdalene was in the story uh, of Jesus, we don't know a lot about her. It says that uh, her name is Mary Magdalene. Magdalene was not her last name. It's where she was from. The Talmud, a Jewish scripture, tells us that Magdala was an area, a region, where there was lots of prostitution. And so many scholars believe that maybe she was a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. 
But that's the area where she was from. She was from an area where there was a lot of sin and brokenness going on. One of the other things uh, Scripture tells us about Mary Magdalene is that she had seven demons. I think we can safely assume that with seven demons, she's got some issues. She's got a lot of problems. She's got a lot of brokenness in her life. And when she encountered Jesus, he cast out those seven demons and he forgave her of all her sin. And so in that moment, when Mary Magdalene, she experienced Jesus, she experienced forgiveness. Maybe everybody else that had abandoned her left her by the wayside, not Jesus. He loved her. So of course she's the first one at the tomb on that Easter morning. She's got this great love for him. And as she's thinking about Jesus, she's like, he's that guy with the big eraser. He erased all my sins in my life, all those horrible things I did. And maybe there are some of you here this morning, you're just grateful. You're grateful that God has rescued you. You're grateful that God has forgiven you of all your sins. And you're maybe still even kind of marveled. I can't believe that God forgave me of that and that. I've done some pretty horrible things. But God erased all my sins. That's what Jesus did for Mary Magdalene. And so, um, so she's loyal. And so the, the image I've got here uh, this morning, do we have an image for this next one with the, the man and the dog? No? Do we have any slides this morning? Oh, okay. I've been assuming you guys have been looking at my slides this morning. So, all righty, never mind. Um, well, I'm glad you got your Bibles. So, you, you don't need, you, we don't need slides anyways, right? You got your Bibles. Um, let's see, here, we, where are we at? Verse 3. So, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, the uh, in uh, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So, of course, the very next person is Peter. And we've read a lot about Peter, right, throughout the Gospels. Peter was that uh, guy who ready, fire, aim. He was just always the first one to speak. He was the speak now, think later kind of guy. He was impulsive. And so as John and Peter race down there, uh, John gets to the tomb first, and he just kind of stands there. He's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Not Peter. Peter goes right into the tomb. He starts looking around, start just kind of uh, uh, examining everything that's going on. I love Peter. Peter's got this childlike faith. We don't think of Peter typically as this theological giant in the church. He's the guy with simple faith. If he were here this morning, I think he would say something like, I hang out with Jesus and I believe him. He wouldn't give us some long theological treaty. He would just be like, ah, oh, Jesus is a great guy. He's my friend. He's my rescuer, my savior. And I know we've got some Peters here this morning because I've talked to some of you who are Peters. 
You don't consider yourself a theological giant or theologically astute, or maybe you haven't even read a lot of the Bible, but you're like, I believe. I believe. And if someone were to press you or push you and say, well, why do you believe? I don't know. I just believe because he's been good to me. He's been faithful to me. This is what I love about Peter. He just believes. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, meaning John, the writer of this gospel, who had reached the tomb first but also went and also went inside. Peter's already in there. Then John goes in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back, say, uh, back to where they were staying. So what is it about John? What is it about John that he has this belief? I think it's the details of this story. John has had the benefit of lots of details, lots of evidence of who Jesus was. But in this moment, he's looking at the details. And if you were going to Israel today and you would go to this place that's known as the Garden Tomb, it looks pretty plain. It's just a bunch of rock, and, and from that rock, there's just a, a, a little cave that's kind of dug out. And then when you would go inside, if you went inside this little cave where Jesus was buried, or one very similar to it, what it kind of looked like, is you would just see kind of this flat area, and on top of that flat area were the linen where Jesus was wrapped. And most of us are not familiar with uh, how they buried people in ancient times. And what they did is they took uh, strips of cloth, as the Bible tells us, and they would soak it in the kind of this gooey uh, 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 substance, and it had uh, aloe, uh, it had myrrh, it had perfumes, but it was, it was really sticky and gooey. And what they would do is they would wrap strips of cloth around the appendages, around the arms, around the legs, and once they had gotten all those things wrapped up, and then they would wrap the body kind of like this. It said, we read earlier, 75 pounds is what Jesus is wrapped with. 75 pounds of of cloth of this ooey, gooey, fragrant substance. They would wrap everything except for the head. And what they would do with the head is they would just take like a napkin and just place a napkin over the face uh, of the deceased person. And so when John walks in, what he sees is no body, but what he does see is his cloth, several pieces of cloth. And, and it's interesting, if you, if you and I were to walk into the, the, the place where Jesus was buried, you might expect um, that there would be cloth everywhere, right? 75 pounds of cloth wrapped all around you. And we would think, well, Jesus probably was sitting there going, like the Hulk, right? And all of a sudden these cloth strips just go and just start, you know, falling off them all over the place, right? Because he's flexing and all the, the cloth just kind of falls off. You would think that there would be cloth all over in that cave. I mean, it would look like a, a crime scene, right? I mean, how in the world did Jesus get all that cloth off? But that's not how John describes it. He, he says that the cloth was just lying there. It was a lot like a cocoon, right, that had just gone flat. That's how the cloth was laying there, which means that's how Jesus was resurrected. He didn't need to break those strips. He just left those strips in a very mysterious, and kind of like a flat tire, 
the cloth just went flat, which is a very interesting scene that John is looking at and he's observing. You know, grave robbers were pretty popular in that time. It, it, it happened a lot. And if you were going to rob a grave looking for jewelry or for uh, any kind of uh, valuables that the, the deceased person had, you know what you would do? You would take the entire cocoon off you know, with, with the body, right? You would take everything. You wouldn't just unwrap the person and then, you know, take off their jewelry or any of their valuables. You would take the whole thing out. Why in the world would you bother do that? Because you've got you to do it fast, right? But the cloth was still there. So if, if somebody robbed the body of Jesus, why it makes no sense why they would unwrap all that cloth. They would have just taken the whole thing and taken that body somewhere else. It's very interesting that the cloth became flat, a flattened cocoon. But then John also gives us the detail that the cloth that was placed over Jesus' face it was sitting in another place, folded up. Isn't that interesting? Some of you parents are sitting here thinking, you know, if Jesus, when he rose from the dead, had time to fold up his napkin, you guys have time to make your bed in the morning, right? You're tempted to use that on your kids, aren't you? It's a very interesting detail that John gives us. But there's some symbolism in that as well. In Jewish culture, when you gathered together for a meal, and if you really liked the food, you would take your tablecloth napkin, you would wipe your face and your hands and all that good stuff, and you would crumple it up in a ball, and you would set it on your plate, and you were communicating, hey, I really enjoyed the meal. I really enjoyed the hospitality. I want to come back again. But if you didn't like the meal, if you didn't like the hospitality... If you didn't plan on coming back, you would take that napkin and you would fold it very carefully and you would gently set it on your plate and you would just made an announcement to the person who hosted you, I'm not coming back. So I think what John is telling us here is Jesus said, I'm out of here, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. It's a very interesting detail that John gives us. And then he says, in that moment, when John saw the linens and all that's going on, then he believed. Now, we've been looking at this word believe over and over throughout the Gospel of John. John uses the word believe, or the Greek word is pistuo, 99 times throughout the Gospel of John. That's more than half the times that that word believe is used throughout the New Testament. John loves to use that word over and over and over. He uses it at the beginning, he uses it at the end, and here John uses it again. He says, that's the moment I believed. A belief in our English language is something really interesting, right? We use this word believe in so many different ways. So I could say to you, do you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4? And you'd be like, yep, I believe 2 plus 2 is 4. But that's a fact. That's not believing. That's just true. Or sometimes we use the word as, I believe the Green Bay Packers are going to win it all this year. Or the Bears right? I believe that's going to happen. And I would just say that's not believing. That's wishful thinking, right? That's hoping. But we say, I believe the Packers. I believe the Bears. 
We use this word believe in so many different ways, and that's not what John is talking about. Oftentimes we think of, of belief as something that just sits in our head, something that we just bring, have, offer mental assent. I believe that is true. John says, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what pistuo means. To believe means to trust, to have an active uh, participation in whatever it is you believe. So for example, you all are trusting in the chair you're sitting on this morning. You believe in that chair. I could bring a chair up here and you say, yep, I believe that's a chair. And I would say to you, do you believe in that chair? Do you trust that chair? And if you sat on that chair, then you were actually taking action to sit on that chair. This is what pistuo means, and this is what John is talking about. It's not just believing that it's true. Many people today say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is a guy, a teacher who came in this world. John says, okay, great. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is do you actually trust in Jesus? In the 19th century, uh, there was a famous uh, high wire guy uh, who would put a big wire across big different things, and he would walk across it. His name was Charles Blondin. And he loved to walk across these things. And one summer day in 1859, he strung a wire between, uh, across Niagara Falls between the United States and Canada. And he went out there one day and he, a crowd gathered. And he was, a, he was a guy who knew how to gather a crowd. And he went out there and he walked across Niagara Falls. It's about a quarter of a mile long. And he's hundreds of feet up in the air. And as you can imagine... The kind of buzz this got and how many people just continued to show up and watch this over and over and over. This was a spectacle to behold. And Charles Blondin, you know, the showman said, hey, I can do even better than that. So the next time he walked across um, with, a, with a wheelbarrow and he was pushing a wheelbarrow and everybody's like, wow, that's awesome. And then the next time he walked across, he walked across backwards and more and more people are showing up. Pretty soon he goes across blindfold, and the crowd is just like, this guy is amazing. The next time he goes out there, he walks out to the middle. He's got a stove with him. He fries up an omelet, and then he continues on to the other side. And the people are like, this guy is amazing what he can do. And then Charles Blondin looked at the crowd and said, hey, do you think I can do it one more time, pushing someone across this high wire? And the crowd began to chant and shout and scream, we believe, we believe, we believe. And then he looked at the crowd and said, can I have a volunteer? And you know, not a single person volunteered for Charles Blondin to push them across that high wire. Even though they had witnessed him doing it several times in several different ways, they didn't really have faith, did they? They didn't really trust this is what it means to pistuo, to truly believe in Jesus, to put your trust in him. Today on this confirmation, affirmation of Baptism Sunday, you guys have made a statement of your faith. You've been invited to believe. When you were little, your parents made those promises for you that they were going to raise you in the faith that they were going to encourage you throughout your life to have this faith, this belief. But what you guys have declared this morning is you're going to do it yourself. 
you know, lean on the community, the church, to make that walk. It's a big day. It's a day where you're saying, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to trust in Jesus my life. You know, Martin Luther said, baptism without faith is just a good bath. Many people falsely believe that baptism is enough, that you can just get baptized, that you can just be confirmed. I would even say something like this. Confirmation without faith is just, I don't know, a good cookie. Are you getting cookies today or cupcakes? Confirmation without faith was just a lot of fun playing Foursquare the last couple of years. Good time, but it means nothing. So today, you guys are invited to put a stake in the ground and say, I believe. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm not always going to get it right. The disciples didn't always get it right. They lost their faith many, many times, but Jesus always forgave them. And so this morning, I want to encourage you guys to walk by faith. And as you go through your life and the days and the years ahead, think about Charles Blondin and ask yourself, am I willing to get in the wheelbarrow and have Jesus carry me across? Because we don't do this. We don't do the work of what it means to be in a relationship with God. Jesus does it for us. We just get in and hold on and allow him to carry us to our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. God, we thank you um, that you are a God who revealed yourself to five different people in just a matter of hours. God, we see ourselves in so many different ways in this story this morning. And yet, God, we're still on this journey of wonder, still on this journey of asking questions, and still on this journey, Lord, of what does it all mean? God, I pray that, like the Apostle John, you would give us faith, faith to trust in you, faith to walk in you, faith to go through life's journeys. It doesn't mean, God, you've promised us an easy life or even a good life, but God, you've promised to be with us every step of the way. And so, God, we want to pray today for each one of us today and ask, Lord, that you would give us that faith to trust in you, to hope in you, and to walk with you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.